0: Before we come before the Word this morning, let's one more time seek the Lord's face and ask His Spirit to help us in understanding and in seeing it change our lives for His glory. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for the opportunity we've had to gather this morning. We thank You for the truth that we have sung, the truth that we have considered in the reading of Your Word, the truth we've considered through prayer. And now, Lord, as we open up the pages of your, of your word and consider um, the truth you have for us in, Ephesians, or in Philippians 4, Lord, we just ask that your spirit would help us to understand these things. Not just to understand them from an academic level, but, Lord, to understand them in such a way that it changes our affections for you, that it changes our love for one another, that it may change how we live our lives in general. So, Lord, use this word now, and we will be pleased with all that you will do during this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. On December 7th, 1941, the United States was shocked by a surprise attack on our naval naval base at Pearl Harbor. Prior to the attack, America had largely wanted to stay out of the war, being satisfied to supply our allies in Europe with materials so that they could fight the war. The attack on Pearl Harbor changed all that. The very next day, Congress declared war on Japan and our military involvement began. Not only was the American government determined to fight this war, but people from all over the country signed up for military service. This picture here demonstrates the overwhelming desire to join the force to fight as recruitment offices throughout our country experienced lines of volunteers that stretched outside of the building and even around the buildings. These individuals with no prior connection had a unified vision to avenge the attack on Pearl Harbor and the lives that had been lost there. But this unified vision was also taken up here at home as men and women joined assembly lines, making much needed resources for our military and endured rations of everyday supplies to fight the war effort. It was this unified spirit that aided in overwhelming Japan and ultimately led to our victory in World War II. As Christians, our calling isn't to defeat an enemy nation but to follow the one who has already brought us from death to life through his victorious death and resurrection. We are called to live as citizens of heaven, worthy of the gospel that has saved us, a gospel we seek to proclaim to a lost and dying world. This laboring for the gospel is a mission that we take on collectively as God's people. And it is one that requires us to move with a unity of mind. And it is this very call to unity of mind and action for the gospel of Jesus Christ that is at the heart of Paul's letter to the Philippian church. In Acts chapter 16, we read of Paul's journey to Philippi and the establishment of the church there. Following Paul's departure from Philippi, the church engaged in gospel ministry with Paul that fostered a deep relationship between them. Paul is now in prison. And the Philippians have yet again sent him a gift to support him while in prison by the hands of one of their church members, Epaphroditus. And the letter to the Philippians is what Paul writes back and sends back with Epaphroditus, thanking them for their partnership in the gospel and to encourage them to seek to live out the gospel call in Philippine. As Rich read this morning, we read in Philippians 1.27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for faith in the gospel. In this verse, we see two major themes of this letter. First, that we are to live a life worthy of the gospel. As human beings, we have been created in the image of God. We were created to find our delight in our relationship with our Creator and to submit to His rule in all things in joyful obedience. Yet in our sin, we seek to dethrone God and to sit on His throne ourselves ordering the universe according to our desires and delighting in our pride. God's justice requires that rebels be crushed, but God in his mercy crushed his son, Jesus, in our place. And in so doing, he reconciles us to God and to one another. So Paul's call to live worthy of the gospel is to live a life that submits to God's rule in all areas of our life, making his glory and praise our priority and to find our joy and delight in God alone. But we also see in this letter that Paul calls them to have a unity of mind. Paul's call for a united mind is one mind that is focused on this call to live worthy of the gospel. The way of thinking that God calls us to here is ultimately modeled in Christ, who came in humility and sacrificed himself for our salvation. It was also modeled by Paul as he didn't find joy in the value of worldly accomplishments but in knowing Christ alone. We are called to this mind that looks to Christ as our treasure, humbly obeying Christ that, we might be, that he might be glorified in all things. This service is one of love for God and it's manifested in our love for one another. This way of thinking is not optional for the Christian. We are called to this one mind. And so Paul calls the Philippians to continue dedicating their lives to the gospel enterprise and to live as those who set their hope in the promises of Christ as we look to eternity with him. And Paul seeks to encourage them to stand firm in the faith, even as they face the threat of persecution and trials from without and some possibly from within. And so as we come to Philippians chapter 4 this morning, we will see in the first nine verses, first, a summary call to stand firm, followed by a specific application of this unity of mind. We will then see that unity of of this one-mind living is evidenced by the fruit of the Spirit in our lives, and finally, that one-minded living dwells on that which is pleasing to God. Let's first consider Paul's summary call to stand firm in verse 1, where we read, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. This verse, Paul in this verse is seeking to bring to conclusion the things that he's been saying previously in this letter. And he begins to transition to his final instructions we see in this verse a reminder of his deep affection for the Philippians as he calls them my brothers, whom I love and long for, and again at the end of the verse, my beloved. Though distance separated them and though their time together had been brief, they had developed a deep affection for one another. And this love for one another is rooted in Christ's love for them, and their common mission to proclaim the gospel. And so Paul desires for them to have a gospel-oriented, Christ-honoring life. And he wants Christ to be their treasure. And as their spiritual father, Paul found great joy as 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 this was evidenced in God's work in their life. We see second then in verses two and three a specific application of this one-minded living. Now, some have suggested that since Paul has strongly encouraged one-minded living so much in this letter to the Philippians, that possibly one-minded living was a struggle for some in Philippi. And the widespread nature of any such disputes in this church is unknown. But Paul doesn't leave us guessing as to one situation where this instruction was needed. In verse 2, we read, I entreat Iodia and I entreat Synthache to agree in the Lord. Now, we don't know very much about these two women. They're not mentioned anywhere else in Scripture. But in verse 3, Paul refers to them as fellow workers who labored side by side with Paul and with others in the gospel. Paul also notes that their names are written in the book of life. And so they are redeemed sisters who have a history of giving themselves to the work of the gospel. What was their issue? Well, the church in Philippi apparently knew what issue was at hand here because Paul doesn't feel the need to go into detail in this letter. But Paul addresses both of these women the same. I entreat Iodia, I entreat Syntyche, so he doesn't take sides in this, in this situation. And this is probably evidence that uh, whatever issue was between them was not deeply theological or an evidence of sin. So if it wasn't an issue of truth or error, what, uh, why is Paul so concerned about this dispute between these two women? Well, this dispute was serious because the gospel was at stake. And the solution to this dispute, or any dispute among God's people, is the unity of mind that Paul calls them to in this letter. This dispute shows that rather than letting God's glory and the gospel transform living be the goal that we share, our thoughts are focused on earthly things that can divide us. Pride often manifests itself in these disputes as we focus in on us, our feelings, our rights, our ability to determine what's right in a given situation, our wisdom, and the list could go on and on. But the reality is that their names were written in the book of life. These two women are going to spend eternity with Christ and in light of that, it is foolish for them to be holding grudges against each other now. And so they are called to have this mind of Christ as they relate to each other, as they, and as they uh, relate to one another in, in humility, in pref- giving preference to the other person. And they are to live that way as they relate to each other, and as they seek to labor together side by side in the gospel. Now, this dispute possibly could have been a public dispute. Maybe it's one that had persisted for some time. We're not really sure, but we see that Paul addresses this letter or this issue not to them in a private letter, just to the two of them, but in the letter to the whole church. And the church is called to assist in the situation. We read in verse 3, Yes, and I ask you, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Now, who was this true companion that was called to help these women? Wouldn't we love to know? (laughs) But once again, the Philippians apparently knew who this was, and so Paul doesn't reveal that in this letter. And I think it's important for us to rest in what God chooses to declare and reveal and not reveal in his word. But whoever this was, they were a true companion, a brother or sister in Christ who shared the mindset of Paul that would have desired reconciliation between these two women and would have desired the living out of the gospel in this church. And this true companion wasn't supposed to just sit on the sidelines and mind his own business. No. He was to engage with Yodia and Synthike, helping them to strive for one mind in Christ and to resolve their differences for the sake of the gospel and for the glory of God. Therefore, we see in this passage here a call to Yodia and Synthike to strive together to overcome their differences, but also a call to the church to assist them, to help them overcome their differences as the church labors to build itself up in love. Now, before we dive into the rest of the instructions in this, in this section of Paul's letter here, let's first consider some application from what we have read here. First of all, Paul's deep affection for Christians in Philippi isn't an unusual thing among God's people. Jesus said that we would be known as his disciples because of our love for one another. So as we gather as God's people this morning here at Eden, we covenant with each other to to do some of the very things that Paul has expressed in this letter. Borrowing a couple of lines from our church covenants, we see that we as members of Eden Baptist Church pledge to walk together in a spirit of unity and love, to exercise affectionate concern and spiritual watch care over one another. And we pledge to faithfully admonish and encourage one another to live holy lives, to serve one another. Now these lines from our church covenant pull truth directly from scripture and it describes the orientation that God's people should have for one another. So as Christians, we gather this morning sharing a common faith god has called us to a common goal to live out the gospel forsaking all that might this world might offer us for gain and instead to give our thoughts and our passions and our desires to to knowing christ and to live for his glory we share some of the same struggles but we're also called to the same joys. And the life of gospel living is one that God has called us to together. So I ask you this morning, do you know this love and desire for God's people? As you come to church, or maybe as you interact with one another uh, in a situation outside of our regular gathering, do you desire to give your life to contend for the faith of those around you? and as we see evidences of God's grace in one another's lives, as the gospel is lived out in this assembly, we should rejoice. And this is true for us as we relate as a church together here. It's true for us as we consider other churches that we fellowship, such as our church plants, such as churches that we engage with in ministry, like the ones we just recently worked with in Chicago. This is the orientation of God's people towards one another. Now, though we don't know the specific details, I think we can all relate to Iodia and Synthache a little bit. We know that though redeemed by our Savior's blood, that the church is made up of sinners and that disputes and relational struggles can and do happen between us. And again, the solution to these disputes is to seek the mind of Christ as we pursue one another in love. In humility, seek to understand one another and to strive to honor Christ together in the situation. And if that's a struggle, then seek help from brothers and sisters here in the assembly. While we might not agree on everything, we can remember that as Paul has expressed in this letter, we are citizens of heaven and our names are written in the book of life. So we have a calling from God that overrides any of the differences we might have. So let us pursue unity and gospel living together. Paul's call to the true companion to step in and to help might feel a bit intrusive for us in our individualistic Western culture. But let us remember that culture is not inspired by God, but God's Word is. And so when we find differences between the two, let us understand that culture is a product of man, and let us show our allegiance to Christ and His calling in His Word. Let us remember that our pursuit for sanctification is not a solo effort, but that Christ calls us to help one another in this goal of Christ-like living. And when someone pursues you to help you, don't bristle at that. Though we could maybe argue that their approach wasn't right or maybe they have their own sin they're supposed to be dealing with, not focusing on me right now. Let us take in the message from this brother or sister and let us prayerfully consider how it might help us In our sanctification. So Eden Baptist Church, may we live out our pledge to walk together in a spirit of unity and love, and may we grow in that love for our sanctification and for the good of the gospel and for the glory of our Savior. Paul's final instructions in this letter begin in verse 4, and they are a list of short exhortations to the church that are not all that different from other instructions he's written in other letters. Yet these short exhortations are deeply integrated into the very themes that Paul has expressed here. And so these short instructions remind us that one-minded living is evidenced by the fruit of the Spirit as we trust in Christ. We read in verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. As citizens of heaven, redeemed by Christ's blood, Paul calls his brothers and sisters in Philippi to live with joy. They are to rejoice in the Lord. And this was a joy that Paul modeled for them so well throughout this letter. We see that Paul, rather than finding joy in earthly treasures and accomplishments, chose to treasure Christ and being transformed by his resurrection power. Paul expressed joy in laboring side by side in the gospel with these dear brothers. And though he was in prison and others were proclaiming the gospel just to spite him, Paul said that he rejoiced because the gospel was being proclaimed regardless. It was a joy to consider how God was working in his situation, whether in life or in death, for the good of God's people, specifically the church here at Philippi, and for the glory of God's name. Paul did not find joy in his circumstances, but in Christ and in his promises to his people. Paul states that we are to rejoice always, No doubt Paul knew that the Philippians were aware of his trials and and they certainly had trials of their own that could have caused them to struggle in their life for the gospel. But Paul calls them to joy, not because their situation is a happy one in the moment, but because God, as God's people, citizens of, of his kingdom, they had the privilege of living for God's glory now and they had the promise of glory to come. And just in case you didn't miss it, (laughs) Paul emphatically says once again, again, I say rejoice. Next we read, let your reasonableness be known to all in verse five. This word reasonableness could also be translated gentleness or forbearance in other translations. And it has this idea of restraint, not using your power to insist on your own way But to withhold that use of power, often with the thought of others in mind. This word is clearly what Paul was describing in Philippians chapter 2 when he calls the Philippians to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not to his own interests only, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind in you, which is yours, in Christ Jesus. So as the Philippians were to interact with one another and with those in the world around them, they were called to walk in a humility that modeled Christ-like thinking. In verse 6, we see Paul calls them to prayer with thankfulness. Where we read, do not be anxious about anything But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Now, Paul was aware of, again, many things that the the Philippians could have been anxious about, whether it be his trials, their own trials, the status of Epaphroditus as he sought to bring this gift to him, uh, this unity that might be in their church. There were many things that could have caused anxiety in the hearts of the Philippians, But Paul calls them to be anxious about nothing, but instead in everything to pray and to seek the Lord. This seeking the Lord in everything is an acknowledgement of our need for God in all things. We don't just pray when we feel desperate, but we're dependent on the Lord in all details of life. From the smallest, most mundane things to the largest of life's challenges, it is the Lord who blesses, who leads, and who provides for his people. So just as we're called to rejoice always, we're also called to pray in everything, in expressing our need for him. Paul adds a uh, specific reference to thanksgiving in this prayer, and I think that's significant because in the midst of anxiety and worry the opposite response to anxiety and worry is thanksgiving it's a recognition that all comes from god and even as we lay our requests before the lord doing so with thanksgiving demonstrates that we trust in our lord to act in a way that is for our good and for his glory Now, you may be noticed as we've been working our way through these fruits of the Spirit that are evidenced in a one-minded living that we missed the last part of verse 5. Paul has so far called his readers to rejoice always, to demonstrate Christ-like thinking in their gentleness, and in the midst of, of all situations of life, even in anxious moments, to pray with thanksgiving, depending on the Lord in all things. And you might ask, how could God's people do these things? Well, in the middle of these instructions, Paul reminds them, the Lord is near. The Lord is near in the sense that he indwells the hearts of his people. Jesus said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. This indwelling of God's spirit is a nearness to God that his people do enjoy and find comfort and strength in. But Paul has also expressed in this letter the to keep our eyes on the end goal of life, and that is eternity with Christ. In Philippians 3, we read, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ. And a few verses later, he says, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body, by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. As we look to the coming of Christ and the promise of eternity with him, there is a sense in which the Lord is near. And as we have our eyes fixed on that prize, it will change the way we live our lives. So which specific meaning is Paul referencing here when he says the Lord is near? We may not be able to be 100% for sure, but both of these realities, first that the Lord indwells his people through his Holy Spirit, that he is with you, and that the coming again of Lord Jesus is nearer today than it ever has been before. Both of these realities are a great comfort to his people. And the result of this kind of faith is peace. Peace. In verse 7 we read, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The Lord is good. He is worthy of our praise. He is the one we seek after, and He alone is our joy. He is near to His people, indwelling them, empowering them, leading them, so we can trust Him no matter the circumstances, and we can trust Him such that we can act in humility, with gentleness because it's not about me it doesn't depend on me it's about him we depend on Christ for all things he is the one in control and it is for his glory now living this way is not necessarily simple or easy there are things in life that are head-scratching anxiety-producing, and maybe even soul-crushing at times. But God is good, and we can trust Him. We can cry out to Him in all things, and we know that He will answer us according to His good purposes. And when you live with these realities firmly fixed in your eyes, the result is peace. Peace is not does not mean a cessation of adversity in this world, but rather peace is a resting in God. A resting in God as He saves us from our sin, as we're restored to a right relationship with Him, and a resting in God in the sense of not striving to see our circumstances turn out the way we want, but trusting in His work in the given situation. This peace is not tied to our own understanding. As Proverbs 3 says, trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not on your own understanding. But while we may not know always what's going on in our given situation, God is all-knowing and he is good and he can be trusted. And so this peace guards our hearts and minds in Christ. As we trust Him, the temptation in our hearts and minds to worry or to question or to strive with our own strength to produce the result that we think we would want, those temptations are all overcome by resting, trusting in God. Paul's last instruction in in this section is found in verses 8 and 9. And in it we read, we find that one-minded living dwells on that which is pleasing to God. We read, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. As Paul brings these final instructions of this letter to a close, he once again addresses the mind of the follower of Christ, and he gives us a list of virtues that are worthy of our consideration. This list is a bit unusual for Paul, as many of the words he uses to describe uh, this virtuous thinking are are not found in other writings of Paul. Paul. And some have suggested that he is using a list of common Greco-Roman virtues that the Philippians would have known from their culture. Our daughter attends a classical education school. It is not a Christian school, but it is a school that seeks to establish its educational foundation on classical Greco-Roman Western virtues. And they often speak of truth and beauty and goodness. God Paul might be using the words that the Philippians would have known from their culture in this section, much like we might hear the words justice or love in our culture today and and appreciate those virtues understood correctly. So Paul here is not, but as we think about these virtues, Paul is not asking the Philippians merely to be good Roman citizens. (laughs) He's calling them to live worthy of their citizenship in heaven. And so while each of these virtues might have some level of understanding from a worldly sense, they have a higher calling and a higher application that is found in Christ alone. Now, this list of virtues could probably have a whole sermon in and of itself, but for the sake of time this morning, let's just seek to work through them very briefly. Whatever is true. As Christians, we know that truth comes from God and so as Christians who strive to know truth, we recognize that God's word is the standard of all truth. Whatever is honorable, this virtue focuses on an evaluation of word or conduct to determine if something is noble or worthy of honor. And as we seek to live life honorably, we recognize that Christ is the ultimate judge of what is honorable. Just justice is a hot topic in our world today. And there are many ideas of what justice might look like, depending on your definition and your desire for justice. But we know that God is just and that He always does what's right. And so to consider justice is to consider righteousness, which comes with obedience to Christ in all things. Whatever is pure. Purity notes that which is free from sin. As we seek to live out the gospel in our lives, our minds are to be filled with that which is pure, which is to suggest that we must remove the things that may be coming to us from our world, which are not pure. Whatever is lovely. This is a broad term that isn't used anywhere else in the New Testament. And it can be used to describe a sunset, a a musical performance, kindness that is shared to someone in need, As Christians, as we consider what is lovely, we we desire to know what God finds lovely, and we seek to live a life that finds its enjoyment in the blessings of God. Whatever is commendable, similar to honorable, it notes something that is well-regarded by others. And so as we seek to live out the gospel call before a lost and dying world, we desire to live a life that is well-regarded, certainly in front of those around us, but more importantly, by the Savior in whom we serve. And this list could go on and on and on. And I think at this point, Paul, as he says, whatever is is excellent, whatever is worthy of praise is, is just realizing the fact that this list isn't going to be exhaustive. There are many other virtues that could fit into this list. But we see here that a battle for the mind and for the heart and affections for each of us is part of the Christian life. Out of the fullness of the heart, the mouth speaks. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus showed that our desires of our heart lead to bodily action, and so evil desires lead to evil actions. So as Christians seeking to live a life worthy of the gospel, we must have a disciplined mind. And as Paul calls them to meditate on godly things, he also calls them to consider godly examples, and Paul has been that example as he's demonstrated, a, a walk of faithfulness throughout this letter. So as those who are reconciled by God, we are to fill our minds with godly things, and we will once again, and, and once again, we have a promise from God if we do so, the God of peace will be with you. Now let's consider here briefly some application from these last instructions. Paul calls the Philippians to live joy and joy and gentleness and thankfulness and in peace as, they can, as they're continually tempted to live maybe otherwise because of the situations they find themselves in. And as we seek to apply these truths to us today, it's important for us to realize that our circumstances do not dictate how we think about God. There are situations in our lives that might make it really hard for us to live out the instructions we find here in Philippians 4. But let us remember that any difficulty we have in living in joy, in gentleness, in thanksgiving, or in peace isn't because there's something wrong with God. It's because we're not seeing Him clearly. We must fill our minds with the things of God and to remind ourselves of His truth and to seek the Lord for faith to trust him in all of our circumstances. We should take comfort in this letter because Paul knew trials and and struggles himself. And yet he knew the truths about who God was and he trusted God wholeheartedly. And we, like him, know a risen Savior who has forgiven us our sins, has restored our relationship with God now, and he is dwelling inside of us, caring for us and guiding us. And he has promised that he will return someday when we will experience no more struggles. And Paul found joy in nothing but this, and we should too. And beyond Paul, we can look to Jesus who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross for us. So in our struggles, let us look to our Savior and know that we can rest in him. So as we look through these things, I encourage you to, to ask yourself, does my life demonstrate a joy in Christ, a gentleness that models Christ as we put our trust in him in all things? Do I pray with trust and thanksgiving in what God has and will do as I entrust my life to his loving care? And are you resting in Christ such that your heart and your mind is guarded in him? We need this mind that that is uh, set on Christ in order to live a life that's worthy of the gospel that he's called us to. And in pursuit of this unity of mind and and in the pursuit of godly living, we know that whatever fills our head will dictate our actions. And so I ask you, what are you dwelling on? A good way maybe to assess this is when you have a free moment in your day, do you pull out your phone? (laughs) And if you do, what do you look at on your phone? What fills your mind during these times? God has called us to noble and virtuous thinking, that which is commendable by God because such things lead to commendable godly action. So do your mind, does your meditation demonstrate a a focus on worldly things, on things that you find pleasure in in the moment? Or does it demonstrate a desire to know God more and to live with purity of mind so that you can walk in righteousness with God? And know that we are people who are called to dwell on things, but we're also dwelled to, call, to, to consider people. And so, just as the Philippians were called to look to Paul and to look to Christ as examples in their life, who do you look up to? Who is a model that you seek to follow? As we look at the text that has been laid out for us this morning, it's important for us to realize that these callings, this instruction is for people who have been reconciled to God through Christ's blood. And as reconciled people to God, we are called to then be reconciled to one another in the way that we live together. But if you're here today and you have not been reconciled to God, if you have not turned from your sin, then I encourage you to do that today. Peace and joy cannot be found in yourself. It is not uh, found in, in trying hard enough to do enough right things because you can never do enough right things to please God. We cannot fix this relationship problem. Only a hope in, this, in our in our. Savior and trusting in his work on the cross to forgive our sins can bring us from rebellion to being part of the family of God. And if you have any questions about this or, or anything that you've heard today, I encourage you to reach out to someone and talk to them today. We would love to talk about the gospel with you today. The United uh, Spirit of the Americans during World War II is an example of great things that people can do when they come together and strive towards the same goal. This is a great earthly example, but it pales in comparison to the heavenly example we have in the lives of God's people. His church here on earth, as empowered by God's Spirit, they live out the gospel call with one mind focused on Christ and the hope of His return. As sinners, we are tempted to think and act in such ways that are out of sync with that unity. But knowing that our lives are about the gospel and the glory of God, let us fight with resolve to walk in a spirit of unity and love, dwelling on that which is eternal and evidencing the Spirit's transforming power in our lives. As we trust in Him. And as we gather this morning for the Lord's Supper, let us recognize that this table is a physical example of the unity of mind that God calls us to. As we gather as God's people, declaring our hope is in the Lord, we with one voice, express our desire to remember the Lord's death, not just in this table, but in how we live out lives together until he comes let us pray lord we thank you for these words these words that were to the philippians and lord they are words of instruction that we need in our lives today and lord apart from your spirits we will not be able to live out this call that you have called us to and so, Lord, again, I, I pray and ask that by your Spirit's power, you would transform our thinking, that you would help us to relate to one another in the spirit of unity and love, and that by doing so, you might be glorified by your people. We pray this in your name. Amen.